Good evening. I hope you guys are having a good week. It's cold. The good thing is, is it doesn't get that cold here, I guess. So You only get 30s for like a day. Um, so for tonight, it's uh, custom in on the first Wednesday service of each month that we're going to take part in the Lord's Supper uh, before we go into our study in 1 Samuel. And the Lord's Supper is... Uh, one of the two sacraments that the Bible teaches us to be active in keeping. The other is baptism of the believers. In Matthew 28, 19, Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. And in verse 20, he says, Teaching them to observe all the things that I have commanded you. And the Lord's Supper is one of those things that he taught us to observe. In several New Testament accounts, we learn that Jesus instituted this communion meal with his disciples the night before he was arrested and then crucified. Jesus also told the church through Paul to have this meal, quote, in remembrance of him, in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four. And all who have confessed Christ as their personal Lord and Savior are welcome to join the Lord's Supper. Uh, would the pastors and elders please come up to pass out the bread? And as the pastors pass the bread out, um, please take it and hold it. And uh, reflect on the body of Christ, which was broken for you. After we have all received it, we will pray, and then we'll eat it at one time. All right, let us pray. Father God, thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to this earth. He lived a perfect and sinless life, but despite his perfection, he was sent to the cross as the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. He made a way for us to be made right with you, which is impossible without him. Jesus said, take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Please join me in consuming the bread. Would the pastors and elders please come up to pass out the grape juice, which represents the blood of Jesus Christ. As they pass out the grape juice, please take it and hold it. Reflect on the blood of Christ which was spilled for you. Once we have all received it, we will pray and then drink it at one time. Let us pray. Father God, you said in your word that life is in the blood. We know that Jesus didn't have to die for our sins, but he did because he loves us. Thank you for giving us new life, life that we didn't deserve made possible through the blood spilled by your son. The scriptures say, in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This is the cup, the new covenant, in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Please join me as we consume the grape juice together. We are told, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let us pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your sacrifice to end all sacrifices. Thank you for letting us be a part of your kingdom and of your plans. May you enable us to carry your good work, to carry out your good work until you come back for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, we are going into 1 Samuel chapters 7 and 8 tonight. And um, by way of introduction, we will see the great victory which leads to freedom in chapter 7. And then we're going to see a crash where they use that freedom for self-imposed slavery in chapter 8. What I mean by this is that Israel came out of a rotten time 
with the ark of God taken from them as a war trophy by their enemy, the Philistines. They came out of this rotten time by the very hand of God, who was treated as a supernatural chess piece by Israel and as an inferior God and lower idol than Dagon, their God, who they attributed their battle victory over Israel. When neither side recognized that the God of Israel was the one true God, he did what no man could do. He destroyed Dagon, the Philistines' lifeless idol, by giving that statue life for a moment, only to prove his supreme nature over this idol by forcing it to bow, and then another one where he crushed it to pieces. The Philistines, frightened and then plagued by a horrible disease, likely spread by the divine infestation of rats, played hot potato with the Ark of God as they attempted to hold on to it somewhere inside their territory, eventually including that it must leave and return to Israel where it belongs. God wrecked the Philistines from within, without the help of any man. When the Philistines decided to rid themselves of the Ark, they created a near-impossible task that if God was truly in power, he would take two milking cows away from their natural instinct to milk their calves and yoke them together, having never been yoked, to pull a cart to a location that no one is guiding them to, just to prove his existence by bringing the ark back to Israel where it belongs. And guess what? God did exactly that. Again, without the help of any man. He is faithful even when we are not. As it says here in 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Once the ark arrives to Kirith Jerem, it seems that all is well. And so let us pray as we study God's word together going into chapter 7. Father God, thank you for your church body here. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. And thank you for who you are. Lord, may we give you glory and honor tonight as we study your word. May it be your Holy Spirit that speaks to us from your word and that you would give us each a word that would change us a little bit and conform us into the image of your son. In his name we pray. Amen. All right, we're going to start off reading from verses 1 through 6 if you guys want to follow along in chapter 7. Then the men of Kirith-Jerim came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill and consecrated Eliezer, his son, to keep the ark of the Lord. So it was that the ark remained in Kirith-Jerim a long time, and it was there twenty years. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the foreign gods and the asterisks from among you, and prepare your hearts for the Lord, and serve him only. And he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So the children of Israel put away the Baals and Ashtoreths and served the Lord only. And Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mitzvah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered together at Mitzvah, drew water, and poured it out before the Lord. And they fasted that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the children of Israel at Mitzvah. And so here we start to see a change where Israel's hearts, they turn back towards the Lord. Praise God for that. And they're going to find victory in this. And back in verse 1, we see that it seems that they tried to do the right thing, but we don't know why they didn't bring the ark back to Shiloh. It's possible that it was destroyed by the Philistines, that Shiloh, where the site of the ark was, could have been destroyed by the Philistines before. And we don't know if Eliezer was consecrated in accordance with the guidelines in Exodus 29. 
But it seems that they tried to do the right thing. They had good desires, and it seems as if the Lord um, blessed and honored that. And then in verse 2, we see that this has been a long time, it says, for 20 years. And I would say that it was long enough to qualify as what I would call a season. The dictionary defines a season as a time characterized by a particular circumstance or feature. So what characterized this season? It says in verse 2, all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And I think that was a good thing. They turned their hearts towards the Lord when they had had a season where that wasn't necessarily the case. And then we see Samuel return. If you guys remember, I said this last week, but we haven't seen Samuel since 4 verse 1. It says here, this is the last time Samuel was mentioned. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines and encamped beside Ebenezer and the Philistines encamped in Aphek. And that's where, from that point, they went into battle. They didn't seek Samuel's guidance. So Samuel was somewhere for about 20 years. And it makes me ask the question, and the scriptures doesn't say, but Spurgeon answered this, tried to answer this question as well to the best of his ability. This is what he says. It may very naturally be asked, where was Samuel all that time? I know not what he was doing during those 20 years, but I have a suspicion, I, might, I may say a firm suspicion, that he was going from place to place, preaching in quiet spots wherever he could gather an audience, warning the people of their sin and stirring them up to seek Jehovah, thus endeavoring to infuse some spirituality into their national life. And so I think, you know, I don't want to um, assume too much, obviously, where the scriptures are silent, we should remain silent. But we know that the last time we heard from Samuel, he was called by God, and he was, he was living that out. And, and then we, we see him come back in the beginning of chapter 7. He's still doing the same thing. So, um, but what I find interesting is that he wasn't recognized within that 20-year period. And I would say we don't need a recognized ministry to share the gospel. We can share the gospel wherever it is that we're at. And um, praise God for that because... You know, we, we're all in different places. We're all in different uh, work situations. And some people are in formal ministry and some people are not. And, you know, some people go back and forth. But wherever you are, you can share the gospel. And uh, I believe um, that Samuel probably did that in that 20-year period. But, but 20 years is a long time. I mean, a lot of things could have happened in that time. And we also see, as we continue to read along through, through verses 4 through 6, that there's a repentance here. Where, you know, repentance is where you turn from your sin towards God. Um, forgiveness is receiving forgiveness for something that you've done wrong. But repentance is where you turn, you change your behavior. And Samuel planned to lead the people in a time of worship and intercession for deliverance from their enemies. But if they had iniquity in their hearts, the Lord would not hear them. As it says here in Psalm 66, 18, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear we need to seek forgiveness, and we need to repent and turn. And then the Lord will draw us closer to him. We cannot expect that the Lord's going to work in our lives when we're living in sin. Walbert says, Samuel challenged the house of Israel to return to the Lord. In verse 3, following this return to the Lord, Israel had a great military victory over the Philistines in 10 through 13, fulfilling literally the prophecy given to Samuel. And so... We see this great repentance, and then we see the Lord grant them this great military victory. Now, you know, 
that's not how it always works in our life. It's not like, you know, we come to the Lord in repentance and then all of a sudden everything works out, you know, just the way that we want it to work out. But what we can say is, is that when we turn to the Lord, um, that repentance is a good thing. You know, it doesn't equate to a one-for-one one success in our eyes, so to speak. But repentance does equate to success in God's eyes. And his success is ultimately our success. And so I would say a winning strategy in life is to repent and lend your life to God's success. He'll take it from there. All right, we're going to continue reading along from verse 7 to verse 12. Now when the Philistines heard that the children of Israel had gathered together at Mitzvah, the Lord of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the children of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. So the children of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. And Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. Then Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. Now as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to the battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with a loud thunder upon the Philistines that day, and so confused them that they were overcome before Israel. And the men of Israel went out of Mitzpah and pursued the Philistines and drove them back as far as below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mitzpah and Shem and called, it, called its name Ebenezer, saying, this, Thus far the Lord has helped us. And so I find it interesting. They get this, what I would say, a newfound faith. And as soon as they get this faith, you know, back in their society and their culture, the Lord immediately puts it to work. You know, often when um, we have a, sometimes I, I would describe my walk with the Lord where it's like a big step at one time, and then it's, you know, maybe not a whole lot of growth for a while, and then something happens, and then another big step at one time. And it's interesting that when you take these big steps, a lot of times the Lord brings a storm into your life, and, and then there's this, faith that you now have to put to work and also in, in verse 9 we see how Samuel offers up a lamb and just like Jesus who is the lamb of God John said the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world now as I studied through John in the past I would come across that and think to myself, what a strange way to greet somebody. Now, obviously, John greeted him that way for a reason. But John basically called Jesus the sacrifice. And I think John, you know, John had an idea that Jesus was the Messiah who was going to go to the cross for our sins. But the, the, the similarity here between the suckling lamb and Jesus was that they, were, they didn't cause any harm. The lamb didn't do anything wrong. It was an innocent lamb. Jesus was innocent. And that's what is an acceptable sacrifice to God. We also see, as their faith gets put to work, that wouldn't you think that the Philistines would have learned their lesson from chapter 6? You know, back, back in chapter 6, where God pretty much showed them who was boss, and uh, they eventually had to get rid of that ark. They had to get it out of their territory. But at the same time, I would say, don't forget that that was 20 years earlier. I mean, we tend to forget some stuff sometimes after a season, right? 20 years. Um, 
So perhaps they forgot about the one true God um, and that caused them to be emboldened against his people. If they, the Philistines, had remembered that God was the one in control and not the Philistines, then maybe they wouldn't have come up against the Israelites. And I would also say that if they, Israel, had remembered that God was the one in control um, back before, I don't know where I was going with that point. Scratch that. We'll take, take that one off. <laughs> I'm sure it made sense when I wrote it down. But, um, but God's in control. He was in control the whole time. He was in control before when they used them, when they used the ark in their own way. That didn't work out good for Israel. And then he, he was in control when the ark was in Philistine when there's no man there. And he's still in control. He's in control even when the Israelites have faith in him. It's not like they took the control from God. He's in control the entire time. And God had also allowed them, the Israelites, to take part in his victory this time. The Lord let his people take part in the victory even though that the Lord did the real work. This made me think of, imagine when you were younger and your parents put you on their lap as a child and you're going down the road and they let you steer the car. And when you're the five-year-old steering the car, in your mind, you really think that you're driving that car around. You think that um, you have the ability to do everything with that car. But in reality, they're the ones that are steering the, you know, they, they're going to be, they might be steering it with their knee, you know, or they might be ready to catch the steering wheel as soon as you get out of the lines. They're working the gas and the brake. And so they're the ones that are truly in control. And uh, I got an interesting experience as well where I had that same experience, but as a young adult, where I was a, a helicopter guy, and I would normally be in the back seat. But um, I was on a deployment at one point, and I was invited to come and hang out in the front seat for a while. So I was like, all right, let's do this. And I had flown in the front seat a lot of times before this, but um, normally the pilots would get the plane, the helicopter up and flying, and then you're going straight. And to be honest, it's pretty easy. It's not that hard. Um, but in a helicopter, by the way, you use both feet and both hands. So you got four things going on all at the same time. And so it takes a little bit of getting used to. But in this particular circumstance, um, I, was, I was being taught how to, how to do more like low-speed stuff. And what I found out was it's about 100 times more difficult. <laughs> and so there would be three sets of controls that have to happen all at one time. And what they would do is they would hold on to two sets of controls, and they would give me the third. And I would think that I'm flying the helicopter. And then eventually they would give me two sets of controls out of the three. And I would think that I'm flying the helicopter. But, you know, every time I would probably nearly crash. And they would grab the controls and they would bring it back. And, and, and I say all that because, again, um, God is truly the one flying. The pilot was the one flying that helicopter. He wasn't going to let me crash. Um, he would have been in a lot of trouble if he would have let me crash. But... Um, but he was the one in control the whole time. And so God's also in control the whole time. And sometimes God lets us take part in his victory. But it is his victory. He's the one who is in control. He's the one who's driving the plane. He's the one who's driving the car. So I just want to remind us of that. And then the last thing here in this passage, we see this thing called the Ebenezer Stone. And, and this is something pretty cool. It seems good to have a good memory of God's good works. Ponder back on the work that God has done in our lives. Maybe you have a worship song or a verse or a, maybe a certain date on the calendar, maybe a certain smell or just something that reminds you 
of the Lord's work at a time in your past. A lot of times there's going to be pain associated with that experience as well. And so think of that. Think of the pain and then think of that um, where the Lord visited you in that time of need and then he put wind in your sails. And it's the Lord Almighty that took over your situation and he wished you through and brought you along. And I'm going to bring up a J. Vernon McGee quote here for you guys. The name Ebenezer means stone of help. It was also a stone of remembrance, looking back to the past. It is customary for us to look back over the past. Remember what the Lord said through, through Paul to the Philippians in Philippians 1.6. Uh, he who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it. Friend, has God brought you to this point? Is he leading you today? Is he guiding you? If he has, can you say, and here's old King James, hitherto, I think it means uh, up until this point, has the Lord helped me? Since he has helped you up until this moment, he will continue to do that. God has given us memories so that we can have roses in December. And I think that's pretty cool. You know, we got to remember that um, throughout our, our storms, um, the Lord's faithful. He's going to bring us through, and He's always going to—he's um, always going to win the ultimate victory. So we can count on that. We can rest assured on that. And the Ebenezer Stone here is a reminder of what work the Lord has done. It's kind of like the Lord's Supper. We read that verse about it being a reminder of the work that the Lord has done. We took tonight, and I will say this last. If you're amazed of the work that the Lord has done in your past, just imagine what he's going to do in the future. So what joy can we have in the Lord? Let's continue to read along in verse 13 through 17. So the Philistines were subdued, and they did not come any more into the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. Then the cities which the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath, and Israel recovered its territory from the hands of the Philistines. Also, there was peace between, the, between Israel and the Amorites, and Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. He went from year to year on a circuit to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and judged Israel in all those places. But he always returned to Ramah, for his home was there. There he judged Israel, and there he built an altar to the Lord. And so I see just great joy in this, you know. We should be able to have joy in the Lord. Let's take joy in how the Lord uses some people. Let's take joy in how the, how the Lord will use some other people, maybe people other than us, in a great way. Um, usually the first person that comes to mind for me is Billy Graham, you know, the great evangelist. And, you know, let's be joyful in the great impact that people like him used, or people like him were used, I should say, mightily by the Lord. But then I would also say, what about on a smaller scale? I'm sure that we can all think of people on a smaller scale that were used mightily by God. And praise God for his hand of favor on people. Don't be jealous, but praise God for others used by God. He chooses who he wants to use and how he wants to use them, and we just know that he's perfect and he'll do Whatever he wants, the way he pleases to do it, and it's going to be good in the end. So we can count on that. We can also say here, um, as we look at 13 and 14, 
that faith lends itself to victory. We can compare this battle to the battle in chapter 4. If you remember the battle in chapter 4, they didn't have faith in God, but they had faith in the ark. Remember that? They lost. But in chapter 7, they had faith in God, but where was the ark? The ark wasn't involved in this battle, and they won. It's the faith in God that wins our battles. I would say, you know, using a special religious device, like maybe the rosary or some other, if you're doing it for religious purposes, it's not going to win you battles. Like, it's not that device. It's not the ark. Church attendance doesn't win you battles. Um, doing a good deed daily doesn't win you battles. Some people believe that, that it's going to earn them favor with God. But ultimately, the way that we earn favor with God is through faith of the God of the Bible and the God of Israel. That's how you're going to win battles. And then down in 15 and 17, we see here where it continues to talk about Samuel, that we see that there's, I would say, three things pop out to me that's an, a good example of a godly life that, that he shows us. We see longevity where it says all the days of his life, and I think that that's awesome to see somebody who serves God all the days of their life. It's not just a short season. It's a long time. We see like a geographical thing here where it wasn't just one area. It says he went on a circuit, and he hit all these different towns. And so he didn't just serve in his one location. He went and served God anywhere where he was. And then also, thirdly, I would say in and around his home. It says that his home was in Ramah. And so he led in his home as well. I just think that's cool. I think that Samuel's a good example for us and as to how to live a godly life. And so I see a lot of this joy here in this uh, last section here in, the, in uh, Samuel chapter 7. It makes me think of the song, I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Where? Down in my heart. Because <laughs> um, Jesus is our joy. And I think that Samuel knew that. And I think that Samuel brought that to Israel. And I think that we see this great example in chapter 7, how they repented and they turned back to the Lord. And the Lord gave them a great victory. And we should be happy for that. But while we're up on cloud nine, I'm going to bring us down the ground, ground level a little bit here because it gets worse. It gets bad in chapter 8, okay? Um, there's times where God's hand is divinely on us and giving us great joys over our enemies. But at the same time... Um, Sometimes we make mistakes, and sometimes things don't go so well. And so we're going to go into chapter 8 here in a minute, but I want to prep before we jump into chapter 8 here with this quote from Wearsby. Probably 20 or 25 years elapsed between the events recorded in chapter 7 and those in chapter 8. Samuel was now an old man about to pass from the scene, and a new generation had emerged in Israel with the new leaders who had new ideas. So again, we have a season And so we're going to pick up here, and we're going to read chapter 8, verses 1 through 6. We're going to see the people request a king. Now it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba, but his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes, and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together, and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Look, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. 
Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord. And so we see the people, they request a king here. They've got this, you know, victory that they had just recently had. And, and I think that there's this positive, you know, emotion that comes along with that. And then we start to see about Samuel's sons. There's like a little bit of a crack here. And what we see is that uh, he had bad sons. And if you guys remember a few chapters ago, somebody else had some bad sons. That was Eli. And I would say this. This is something that popped out to me in this, is that, you know, we see Eli. He did not correct his sons. He did not discipline them. Um, and and the Scripture doesn't really seem to speak of Eli in a, in a good light um, in that way. And it seems to be speaking of Samuel in a, in a more of a positive light. Now, I would say maybe this could be a little bit of proof that you could be a good parent or a bad parent, and you could have a good kid or a bad kid. I don't think that it's gonna, it's going to be a guarantee that you're a good parent, you're going to have good kids automatically, or the other way around. And I know that there's the scripture in, in the Proverbs that talk about raising up your child in the ways of the Lord so that they will not depart. But the Proverbs, you know, that's a rule of thumb, and the Proverbs give the general guidelines. It's not an absolute cause and effect. It kind of gets back. It's not a one-for-one one thing. You know, ultimately, people have to make their own decision, and you cannot will somebody else into a relationship with God regardless of who they are. You might have an influence over their decision, but ultimately, their decision is left up to them. And so I'd say to the parents, you need not put too much pressure on yourself needlessly to force conversion on their kids. Samuel seemed to be a great dad, and yet it didn't work for him. So just want to re relieve that pressure off of all of us here with kids. And then, continuing on where, they, where we read about the people requesting a king, we see that his sons are rejected in favor of a king in verses 4 and 5. And it says that they had made complaints about his sons. It says that they told him that he was old and the sons did not walk in his ways. And the thing is, is that they were right. And I don't think Samuel had too much uh, going in his, <laughs> in his favor here. He didn't really want to do this, but still it doesn't make it right because in this case, it wasn't really the right thing for them to go over to a monarchy from a theocracy, which is what they were in before. And again, I'm going to quote a Wearsby quote here. The elders forgot that it was the Lord who was Israel's king and who gave her army the ability to defeat the enemy. Samuel was a man of spiritual insight, and he knew that this demand for a king was evidence of spiritual decay among the leaders. They weren't rejecting him. They were rejecting God. And this grieved Samuel's heart as he prayed to the Lord for wisdom. And so it's almost maybe a, implying here that the elders had looked at this, you know, they had had this victory, and maybe over time they had maybe started to attribute the victory to themselves and not so much to God himself. At least it seems to be what Wearsby was saying. And I think I can kind of generally get behind that and, and, and agree with that. God won the victory. We could all agree on that, not the Israelites. Yet the Israelites forgot, and they demanded a king. And do we often experience a great victory? We give the Lord credit maybe initially, but only tempted later at a, at a later time to maybe give credit to ourselves or to minimize the influence of God in that decision. You know, we need to look back on our lives at the times that we had great victories in our lives, great spiritual victories in our lives, and we attribute that to the Lord, to his power, and not to our own. 
And so we see Samuel had a good reaction. He turns to the Lord in verse 6. He prayed to the Lord. And I would say that that's what we need to do. When we encounter a situation that's tricky for us or tough, we need to give it to the Lord. He could have just said no, but he did decide to bring it to the Lord. And we're going to see what happens from here as we continue along in verse 7 through 10. And the Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them, according to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day with which they have forsaken me and served other gods. So they are doing to you also. Now therefore heed their voice. However, you shall solemnly forewarn them and show them the behavior of the king who will reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who asked him for a king. Samuel received a word of warning from the Lord here. The Lord gave them over to the desires of their heart. As it says in Romans 1, we all ultimately get what we ask for, the desires of our hearts. What's the desire of your heart? It's God or it's sin? We see here in John 10.10, the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. And so one leads to life, and one leads to death. To the one where the aroma of death leading to death, and the other the aroma leading to of life leading to life, and who is sufficient for these things. And the Lord answered Samuel's prayer with a response that Samuel probably did not want to hear, Yet wasn't Samuel a great example in bringing this up in prayer? Yes. And doesn't fervent, a fervent prayer life bring you closer to God? Yes. And then God will give you all the desires of your heart? Yes. But we should desire what the Lord desires. Our expectations don't always align with his. If God is truly good, we have to trust him that he is doing the right thing. Have you ever had a prayer clearly answered by God? but it wasn't the response that you wanted to hear. Maybe you were going through a trial. Maybe you felt called into a trial. You know that the Lord was with you and he was bringing you through it and you're just getting tired of it and you were just ready to get it over with. You're ready for the answer for the Lord to come around. And then the Lord answers your, your prayer and his answer is, is persevere. That's not what you want to hear. <laughs> or whatever it is. I know that many of us have probably similar situations where the Lord answers our prayer, and it's clearly an answer from the Lord, but it might not be what we wanted to hear in that time. But we can know that help will eventually come. It might not be now, and it might not be in our way that we think is the right way, but it will come, and it will be in the Lord's way. And also, along with the same lines here in verse 8, where we see that he says, that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. It made me think of this New Testament verse here in John 15. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. And so when we're aligned with Jesus, we can't expect that everything that we do, everybody's always going to be pleased with us. We need to do what we feel is the right thing um, in accordance with the scriptures and, and in accordance with, with the way that the scriptures teach us to live a godly life, but that doesn't mean that everybody's going to love us all the time. 
And so we need to be prepared that sometimes people are going to hate us, and that's okay. And then we see in verse 9 where, where Samuel explains, um, he explains the consequences of their sins. Or he's about to explain the consequences of their sins. And I would say this, that if you know people that you're able to counsel or mentor, um, I would say that try to give people a chance to understand that the turmoil that they might bring into their life if they, if they willfully go into a sinful life. You know, think about the toddler touching the stove. You're going to let them know that they're going to get burned. You don't want them to go through that burn. But think about it at a little bit of an older age. Think about your teenage son, maybe in regards to teaching him about the snare of lust or pornography your teenage daughter about the snare of vanity and the life of retail consumerism and credit cards. Lust and vanity both lead to emptiness, but you don't figure that out until you have damaged relationships, experienced broken emotions associated with a superficial lifestyle, and had to pay down maybe years of credit card debt for items that you purchased and probably disposed of long ago. Worst of all is that you missed out all that time living in sin, away from the king. You missed out on the peace, you missed out on the joy, and I would say that's the ultimate good life. And so I would say that you guys know about FOMO, fear of missing out. FOMO is a good thing for the Christian. You don't want to miss out what the Lord's got for you because you choose a life of sin. So there you go. All right, in verse 10, he lays down a little bit of a preparation for what we see in 11 through 20, where... There's basically two options. Um, the option that they're asking for is a, is a king, but the option that they have currently is a judge. And Samuel was the last of the judges, if you guys remember that. And so the judge keeps authority at God and not at a human being, but the king brings the authority down to the human being. And so in the following list um, of things that we're going to see from 11 to 20, um, we're going to see what happens as Samuel describes um, what's going to happen as they inhibit God's authority over their life and impose a man's authority over their life. Pay attention to all the restrictive language and the negative attributes that having a king over us instead of the one true king God over us. And let's read along in verses 11 through 20. And he said, This will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots, and to be his horsemen, and some will run before his chariots. He will appoint captains over his thousands and captains over his fifties, will set some to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and some to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, and bakers, and he will take the best of your fields, your vineyards, and your olive groves, and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage, and give it to his officers and servants. And he will take your male servants, your female servants, your finest young men, and your donkeys, and put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your sheep, and you will be his servants. And you will cry out in that day, because your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, and the Lord will not hear you in that day. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, no, but we will have a king over us, that we may also be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And so Samuel prophesies the consequences of having the king. And we see that from verses 11 through 20. 
there's six phrases in here that uses the word take. He's going to take this. He's going to take that. He's going to take this. And in verse 17, there's an interesting statement. And you will be his servants. And I find that's interesting because what these people don't want is they don't want to be enslaved by somebody. That's why they want their king. But what are they voting for? <laughs> they want to be enslaved by their king, right? And so not only that, but this is learned behavior. This is learned behavior from the world around them. It was the other nations that had kings at this point, not them yet. Because God didn't prescribe them a king. Although, and this is a whole other study, and I won't go into it. He did provide provisions before this for a king. And that was because the Lord knew that they would eventually attain one. And the Lord will even work through that, especially as we see uh, King David. But let's just say it wasn't the original plan. All right? We're going to continue along in verses 21 and 22 and close this chapter out. And Samuel heard all the words of the people, and he repeated them in the hearing of the Lord. So the Lord said to Samuel, Heed their voice and make them a king. And Samuel said to the men of Israel, Every man go to his city. Samuel gives the people the desires of their heart, according to the Lord's will. The Lord said in verse 22, heed their voice and make them a king. So Samuel, in, in the early part of the chapter, said that he, he did not want to do this. And then at the end of the chapter, we see that the Lord told Samuel, because he went to him in prayer, and he said, no, give it to him. So he does. It made me think of the slogan, have it your way. You guys know about that one? Um, you know. Burger King, <laughs> and I'll say this, it's a trick, don't do it, it's just a bunch of saturated fats, it's going to make you uh, blubbery, and it's not going to be good, so, you know, it sounds like a good thing, have it your way, but, um, hey, it's going gonna, it's gonna to burn them in the end. The children of Israel are, are going to have it their way, and God's going to give them a king, and um, what was true in the days of Moses is still true, and I'm going to quote psalm 106 here and he gave them their request but sent leanness into their soul and god will grant israel's desire for a king but it will not lend it will not be to their advantage ultimately they're going to get what they asked for it's not necessarily going to work out the way that they wanted it to and so in closing paul refers to himself as a bond servant of christ in romans 1 1 he says here Paul, a, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. And if you do a quick word study on this, you'll see that the word bondservant in the Greek, which is the original language, is doulos. And doulos is the Greek word that's also used for slave. And in some versions of the Bible, it actually uses the word slave as well. Also, there's other times where the word bondservant is used of some of the other disciples and apostles. It's used of Jude, Peter, James, and others that I had found. They're all slaves to Christ. And so it's interesting that we see slaves to this king here in, in the Old Testament with the Israelites. And it seems like they're going to lose the favor of the Lord according to the Lord's conversation with Samuel here. But we can also be slaves to Christ. And... <laughs> You know, with a more complete study through the New Testament, I'll say newsflash. We are all slaves. We're either slaves to sin or slaves to righteousness. And I'm going to quote an old Bob Dylan song here. You've got to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. 
And I would almost say that Bob Dylan maybe lifted those words out of the word of God in Romans 6, 16 through 18. It says, do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. But God will be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. And I like how in here, if you see, you were slaves of sin, and you became slaves of righteousness. And once you become a Christian, you become a slave of righteousness. And even way back in the Old Testament, last verse for you guys, Joshua had something to say about this too. And if it seems evil to you that to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And so the Lord has also given us freedom found founded upon our faith in Christ, just like we see here of Israel in chapter 7. May we use this freedom for spiritual victories. Choose today whom you will serve. If you want a good New Year's resolution for yourself, choose in 2024 who you will serve. Choose Christ. Let's be found to be the bondservants to Jesus Christ and not slaves to the world. With that, let's just go before the Lord in prayer. We're not going to do our usual intercessory prayer tonight because we had communion tonight, so... Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for using a text, uh, his historical text from thousands and thousands of years ago to teach us lessons that we can learn and apply to our life today. Your, your word is relevant, and, and we can all use something here. And so I just pray that whatever it was, that you just stick it inside of us and that we can change a little bit and be conformed more into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for your church body here. And lift them up to you, Lord. I lift up the church as we go forward. In the next several weeks, we love you so much. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, guys, have a good week. We'll see you guys on Sunday. If you guys want prayer or anything like that, come on up. Love to pray with you, love to talk with you.